All right, so we've been in this spiritual being series, which has been a great series because it's, it's, really, it's really deep. Like you had to put your thinking hat on uh, to really study out what the Bible is saying because we don't, we don't want to just assume something. We don't want to shy away from something. We want to uh, dive in, lean into what the scriptures say. And we discovered week one that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And in the heavens or the heavenlies, there are spiritual beings. And in, on the earth, there are human beings. And these two beings are to set in those places to rule. They're, they're heavenly beings that rule over the heavenlies. And they're spiritual. I mean, there's human beings that rule, rule over the uh, earth. And, the, and so uh, the land, if you will. Yeah. And so uh, we've been looking at that. And we've been talking about angels and the types of angels and all the good guys, so to speak. And so tonight we're going to talk about the bad guys. We're going to see the, um, the spiritual evil that the Bible unfolds and talks about and how it applies to our life. And uh, we're going to tie it in even to what we're seeing uh, today. Uh, and so I'm excited about that. So you'll see a lot more content uh, than previous sessions because I wanted to make sure that you had a lot to chew on, to go home and to study, your, you know, read it for yourself, read the scriptures for yourself. Don't take my word for it. But in session five, we're going to talk about the Satan and demons. And, uh, and so you see here in the opening paragraph that one of the most striking things about Jesus in the New Testament Gospels is his awareness of an ultimate enemy. And it was not humans. It was not us. And so throughout this series, we've been talking about uh, these rebellious spiritual beings, these forces of power that were referred to by the biblical authors. And they are that they influence corrupt uh, human behavior. Behavior, and we meet these um, the bad guys, the rebels. We meet them in the garden, and so they're in the opening pages of our Bible. And we see the influence of dark spiritual powers in the lives of humans throughout the entire biblical story. And Jesus too is aware of these powers and confronts them by name. And we're going to see that later in our study. And so in this installment. Uh, we're going to take a closer look at Satan and demons in the story of the Bible. So let's start in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. Uh, and so let's look at that first. Um, well, it says actually here, in, it starts by the New Testament. In the New Testament, uh, we see that Jesus and his apostles assume a lot. There's a general understanding of spiritual evil, and we're going to talk about that as well, why they assume uh, and that knowledge is provided to them by the, the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. And so uh, we're going to go back to uh, the main themes of spiritual evil that we find in the first three quarters of your Bible. Okay, So we're going to dive into the Old Testament, mainly looking at Genesis and then launching it from there. And so this portrayal of uh, spiritual evil in the Hebrew Scriptures is fascinating and complex. Okay, uh, So they... The biblical authors, they never express the mysterious nature of evil by describing it directly. Rather, they give this mosaic of stories, of images, to show how the, the evil manifests itself in and through human behavior. Okay, so like evil itself, the powers of spiritual evil are elusive. They're hard to nail down. Yet their presence is always felt in the biblical drama as it is felt today, right? We feel that 
uh, evil presence in our world or that evil presence that comes and tries to uh, pull us away from God. And so we've all seen it. And so we're going to go to Genesis chapter 1, and we're going to look at through, through Genesis 1 through 11. I don't know if you know this or not, but Genesis 1 through 11 covers all the major themes of the Bible. So everything is a lot from the rest of the Bible is a launching pad. Genesis 1 through 11 is a launching pad for the rest of the Bible. So we're going to look briefly at um, creation. We're going to look at the garden and we'll look at the snake that's in the garden to help us understand uh, the spiritual evil that we see even in our time today. Okay, so going to the creation narrative. We see in Genesis 1 that on day 6, God populates the dry land with creatures. First, the animals, and after that, humanity. And there we see it. You can see it in your notes. We won't read it, um, this scripture in its entirety, but you see the reference there where God created everything, and then He created humans. All right? And so I want us to notice something unique here, that humans are the last to be created in Genesis 1, Yet they are the ones elevated to rule over all creation. Okay, do we notice that? That in the creation account, humans are the last, peop- the last thing to be created, yet it, it is the humans that God set to rule over all creation. Okay, this right here is very important for us to understand from Genesis 1 because it lays a pattern that we see woven throughout the Scriptures. It is this pattern where the newcomer rules over the old, the people that were there first. Okay, so uh, you could call them the latecomer versus versus the uh, originals or something like that. And so we see this pattern in the Bible over and over again. I'll give you some references of it, but it's where God elevates the latecomer to a role of honor and it, they are above the early comers, okay? So in creation, even though the animals were there first and humans came after them the, day, the, next, the next day, humans ruled over them, okay? And what this does is it created some jealousy, anger, animosity between the uh, early comers, the orig- people that were there first, and the late comers, and so you can write some references down if you'd like to see more of this, but very next chapter, or actually chapter 4, Cain and Abel. That is a prime example of this pattern that we're seeing where the early comer has anger or hatred or jealousy towards the younger because they get to rule over them. Cain and Abel, uh, Jacob and Esau. That's where God said the older will serve the younger. Uh, you've got Joseph and his older brothers who hate him because of his dream of ruling over them. So we see that. Um, even in David, David's older brothers, they were jealous of him, right? Because they weren't chosen as king. And so we see this biblical pattern from the jump here that I think is so important for us to, to lay a foundation of to see, the, to see how evil is going to play out is that the early comers are jealous or mad or have hatred in their heart towards the latecomer. Does that make sense? We even see it today in the Middle East with the conflict in Israel. Palestine's one of their biggest arguments is, we were there first. This is our land. Israel is the newcomer. And they are 100% right. But it, that doesn't matter that they were there first. God set them to rule over 
that area. God gave them that land and said, you're going to rule this land. You're going to possess this land. And so it's the same biblical pattern we're seeing play out today that's in our generation that was playing out in the beginning where God set this pattern of the, the new guy on the block is going to be the one to rule over all the originals. And so we see that through that. So I think that's just something uh, that we should look at. Um, and then look at the garden. When it comes to uh, Genesis 3 in the garden, let's, let's keep our minds in the frame of this pattern, because it's important, all right? Uh, in, the, in the frame of this pattern, the garden uh, of Eden, is, and you see in your notes here, is a high mountain garden temple where heaven and its creatures overlap with earth and its creatures. So Eden was the highest place on earth. And it was where heaven and earth overlapped, okay? And so this garden is the source of a single river. Uh, we see that in Scripture that leaves the garden and it divides into four rivers. Uh, we see that in Genesis. Um, and this has a fairly obvious implication. The Garden of Eden is portrayed as the highest place on dry land. I think that's important for us to know uh, because we're going to see how uh, the spiritual evil forces try to recreate that in just a moment. We're going to see that. Okay, um, there's also, if you want to get into all this, uh, when, when the Bible talks about the Garden of Eden, um, there's some imagery there. It says it's the, land, it's the land of gold, of fruit trees, of precious gems, of abundance. These are precisely the same images and materials used when they constructed tabernacles or temples. And so when the people of Israel were instructed by God to create the tabernacles and temples, they were doing the imagery based on Eden. And so I just, that's just something um, that we could look at. Okay, um, so when we talk about uh, the garden, we know that there was a snake that appeared in Genesis 3, okay? And so there's a snake that appeared in Genesis 3, and we have a category for this kind of creature. And we're going to uh, talk about it because we actually referenced it last week, I believe. Uh, so if you see the snake uh, in your notes there, Genesis 3 it, it identifies it as a talking snake, okay? It's very interesting. Um, look at Genesis 3.1. It's in your, in your notes there. It says, Now the snake was more shrewd than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made, okay? So this snake was more than just an animal. We know that. For starters, it can talk, okay? So we know that it's more than just an animal because it can talk, okay? It says that it was more shrewd this can mean a couple of things. It can mean that it was more shrewd than the, the rest of the beast, or it can mean that it, was, um, it wasn't even technically a, like the beast of the field. Either way, it doesn't really matter. It was not your average snake, okay? Uh, I think it's important for us to understand that. Um, this snake also appears to have knowledge of God's decisions and purposes because he says, God knows that in the day you eat the fruit, you'll be like the divine beings, knowing good and bad. So he must have some kind of insight there. Um, and then notice that uh, in Genesis 3.14, the scripture's there, that when God curses the snake, uh, what, is it, what happens? He goes to his belly. This puzzles a lot of people uh, for, for centuries. Um, so if he, wasn't, if he wasn't already on his belly, you know, if he wasn't like a normal snake, you know, why is this in here? Well, a normal snake um, already crawls on its belly, already gets dust on its belly. So God's saying that the future state of this snake is going to be going to the dust and crawling on the ground. This is a statement that should, we should assume the snake approached humans 
like we would approach a human. They weren't crawling on the ground. And so, um, so we're going to see how the snake uh, plays into this and what it is. But uh, Isaiah, as you see in your notes, gives us a very good insight to who this snake was. Now, I don't know if you're like me. Uh, I just always was like, well, that's just the devil. That's just the devil, right? That's just Satan. That's Lucifer. Um, but the Bible actually gives us insight into what this snake was. And so Isaiah has a vision of it. And you'll see um, in your notes here that this puzzling image of a snake that doesn't crawl on the ground finds its confirmation much later in the biblical story when the prophet Isaiah had a vision of God's heavenly throne room and he sees heavenly creatures surrounding God's throne. And in Ezekiel's vision of the same space, these beings are called cherubim or living creatures. But Isaiah calls them, like we saw last week, seraphim, seraphim. Okay, so this, what does that word mean? Okay, well, and, and we're going to discover that in a minute. But look at Isaiah 6. It says, Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. He, he, and, he, and two he covered his face with, and two he covered his feet, and two he flew. Okay, so we see here that Isaiah, in Isaiah, there, we uh, see a description of seraphim. Um, and that word there is the same word that's used to describe the snake. Um, and this is the only place where, uh, in the, where we see a heavenly throne room creature called a seraphim. Um, and uh, the definition of that, like what that Hebrew word means, seraphim, means venomous snake. Venomous snake. So seraphim means venomous snake. You'll see Numbers 21 and Deuteronomy 8 in your notes that reference that. And, and it even shows the difference between snakes and venomous snakes. Yahweh sent snakes, different Hebrew word, venomous snakes, seraphim. Uh, so we see that there. So um, I think it's important for us to look at that and dig into that and uh, read into that more outside of tonight of was this snake in that approached Eve in the garden a seraphim? Was it a, a part of the, uh, the heavenly throne room, an angel, uh, a part of that? Um, and so there's some scriptures for it. Um, you see an Isaiah scripture there as well. Later in the book of Isaiah, the prophet, he described the ruler of Babylon as a snake. And we're going to talk about Babylon in a minute. Uh, but he describes them as a snake and a flying snake. Uh, so this appears in the same section as Isaiah's accusations against the ruler of Babylon, which refers to both the uh, human king of Babylon and the spiritual power that lurks behind Babylon. And you see those scriptures there. For from the snake... And then it says, and its fruit will be like a flying snake. Um, and then I, I included some imagery there. Uh, flying snakes were common in a, they were a common religious icon in the ancient Near East. And images of them have been found in, in uh, ancient Israel, Israelite art. Um, and you can see that there. So just an interesting uh, concept, something to look into, dig into, of who was that snake in the garden um, was it this seraphim uh, there? All right. Um, and then we see Ezekiel's betray, uh, betrayal of spiritual evil. And, uh, and we'll also see the snake as well. Um, and so let's look at this. And then um, I got something I want to I share about it that I, that I noticed right before, right before I came in here tonight. It's really good stuff. All right. So notice what Ezekiel 28 says. Uh, the prophet Ezekiel, 
who looks out at Tyre, that, that's this powerful uh, kingdom, he accuses its leaders of acting like an ancient spiritual rebel. Ezekiel first accused Tyre, uh, Tyre's king of claiming to be a deity. And you see the bolded letters there. there. It says, you have made your heart like the heart of God. And then it's go on down. It says, you will still say, I am a God. And so what Ezekiel is saying here is that this evil spirit is in this king. Okay, this evil spirit is in this king. And stick with me as we build this case because it's going to uh, go somewhere. But this evil spirit is in this king. Okay, and then Ezekiel uh, keeps on going and he likens this king to the ancient spiritual rebel, the snake who was in the in, in the Garden of Eden. Okay, so. This snake that we just talked about that possibly could be a seraphim that was the deceiver. It was the one that caused uh, Eve to rebel that, that because of that jealousy of the pattern that we see. He was originally with God before humans. The, the heavenly throne room was there before humanity. They were one with God. They were fellowshipping with God. God then makes man in His image and then now walks with man. And now, this, now man now rules over the heavenly beings. And they're like, hold on, like what's going on? No, 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 we want to be with God. We want to go back before Eden because, because we were with God. We had rule and authority. We had this, okay? And so that's what we see this rebellion taking place. And then Ezekiel's giving us details of how that same spirit, that same deceiver is now in, in kings of the time. He's inhabiting these kings. It's almost like what we would call a modern-day demon possession. These kings were demonized by this same spirit. And then Ezekiel makes the parallel in verses 12 through 17, calling it this ancient spiritual rebel, the snake, who inhabited Eden. Okay, so there's some bolded text you'll see. And he says, you were in Eden, the garden of God. Okay, then it says you were anointed as a covering cherub. So you were one of these divine beings, these heavenly hosts, a part of God's throne room. Okay, that the um, the the um, Satan in the garden, Lucifer, whatever you want to call him, the deceiver was was a part of this heavenly throne room. Okay, and then it goes on to say you were filled with violence and you sinned. So I drove you in disgrace from the mounts of God, which is Eden. So it, it, it drove them from the garden. Okay, I expelled you, guardian cherub. So he referred to him as a guardian cherub. Okay, so that snake in the garden was referred to here as a guardian cherub. So it's given us more insight into who the snake was, what kind of spiritual being it was. Uh, and then it even the last little bolded there says, you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. Because remember, he, did, he was cast out and now he's treaded upon and now he's lower than and all that. But if you remember from Sunday's sermon, just a cool little note, we discovered that in Genesis 6, um, that when, uh, and we're going to talk about that in a moment, but we discovered that spirit of Hamas. Remember that from Sunday? And how it was in the land in the days of Noah and it is in the land today. It actually was in the garden. You were filled with violence. That word in Hebrew, Hamas. Hamas. So when, so when Ezekiel's having this vision and describing the snake in the garden, he's saying that that snake was filled with Hamas. 
the same word that we talk about in, in, Gen in Genesis 6 before the flood when the giants were created and they were filled with Hamas. We see that. And so we see how satanic it is, this spirit of Hamas, that it is a satanic spirit that was in the garden. Okay, It came from there. And so just a side note so that you know that it ain't nothing new. It's been going on since creation. It goes back to um, the garden. Okay, so, this, uh, so Isaiah and Ezekiel both provide us with the earliest interpretations of Genesis 3, the snake. Okay, um, they, they understood that the snake was a spiritual being, one of the winged throne guardians, a living creature. That's what that word cherubim means, cherubim, uh, cherub. It means living creature. Um, that was one of those living creatures in the garden temple in Eden. Um, and Eden. And then, uh, as we learned from the latecomer pattern that we talked about, it seems here that the, the reason that this snake was causing this deception and trying to get them to turn away from God, trying to get them to eat of this uh, tree, was because the snake resented coming under the authority of human creatures. Um, and so, this uh, glorious creature, because that's what Satan was in its original state, created state. He was a glorious creature. He misused its honor uh, and placed its God-given authority. It misplaced it, and it rebelled. It rebelled against God by seducing the humans into misusing their authority as well. And so this snake represents a spiritual rebellion that coincides with the earthly rebellion of humans. So Genesis 3 portrays the fall of humanity but also the fall of a spiritual rebel. Okay, so this is where we're not only seeing the fall of man in Genesis 3, we're seeing the fall of the spiritual rebel that the Bible talks about, the deceiver, the slanderer. This is all happening right here in Genesis 3. Um, and so, um, so let's uh, continue on with Genesis uh, after the garden, okay? The implied presence of spiritual evil. So after the garden, this spiritual rebel is almost never directly described. Rather, his presence is hinted at when biblical characters are faced with a moment of decision or great moral test, like when Cain is tempted to murder his brother by sin, as the Bible says, which is depicted as a hungry animal. Notice that, Genesis 4. It says, that, uh, it says that, but if you do not do good, at the door is sin, and it's lurking. It's lurking there. That's the same language that Jesus talked about, um, how the enemy is lurking, seeking whom he may devour. Um, he is the devourer that came to kill, steal, and destroy. It's the same spirit that, that uh, caused Cain to kill Abel. Uh, so this, uh, Genesis 4, is very important because it sets the, the standard, if you will. It sets the paradigm for which the snake is going to operate outside of the garden. So we're going to start looking outside of the garden now and seeing how does this snake, this spiritual rebel, how does he operate outside of the garden? Um, because this evil becomes present in moments of sinful desire. We're going to see that. That tests human moral character. And it plays this the same animal-like role as the snake in the garden. It twists words. It tells deceptive lies. It tells half-truths. 
uh, that are going to justify inappropriate behavior. Um, and we're going to see that humans are going to give in to those lies and they're going to embrace their own self-destruction. Um, and so uh, Genesis 3 and 4 are going to set a template for how spiritual evil works in and through human decisions. And so it's important for us to note, evil is not something God created. Rather, it is the sad corruption of what was intended for good, i.e. the Garden of Eden was intended for good. Man, man walking with God, that relationship there. Uh, angels, all that was intended for good, but there was some corruption that happened there. Um, although evil is always a possibility in a world where God grants true dignity and moral responsibility, God gives us that, and, and, as, long as, and as well as free will. He gives that to His creation. Um, if His creatures, His creation, choose to give in to evil, it's going to result in self-ruin. And so we're going to see that play out. Um, we see this, uh, Genesis 3 is intensified by chapter 4 of uh, Cain killing Abel. And then it's intensified even more in Genesis 6. We're going to land in Genesis 6 because I know a lot of people had questions about that when we brought it up a few weeks back. The sons of Elohim. The sons of Elohim in Genesis 6. Uh, this is one of the strangest stories in the Bible. Um, and you see the scripture there in your notes um, where um, Genesis 6, 1 through 4. Um, and, and, I, and I'm also going to show us where this same spirit that we see in Genesis 6 is also operating today. Um, it, is, it is still um, in the world today. Uh, Genesis 6 here, you see, uh, we'll read it because um, it's important. We're going to launch off of it and talk about it. This is the, NI, <clears throat> excuse me, the NIV version, by the way, uh, of the Scriptures. Every Scripture in here is NIV. It says that now when humanity began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humanity were good, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Then Yahweh said, My spirit shall not reside in humanity forever, because that one is also flesh. So his days shall be 120 years. Side note, uh, some people say, well, that would that God was then establishing the average age on earth, but I believe it was actually a countdown to the flood, that when he said um, uh, they, they, their days shall be 120 years, that was then the clock that started the flood. They had 120 days until the flood happened. Um, that wasn't like the average uh, lifespan uh, now. And then it says, the Nephilim were in the land in those days, and also afterwards, we're going to see that, how that played out, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. I told you it's wild. The, those were the mighty men who were of old and men of the renown. Okay, so um, we might struggle to understand what's happening here because in our current minds, we're, um, we don't have any context. But the ancient writers and the, the people of that time had other context. Other civilizations had stories of these deities coming to earth and mating with humans and creating these giants. Um, some of them that are in uh, old literature, of course not biblical literature, but just other literature that you even hear the term uh, today, especially in like video games and stuff, uh, Gilgamesh. Gilgamesh was this uh, half-human, half-deity, uh, this giant in the land. Uh, so the uh, modern readers don't have the same ancient context 
as the people of that time had. So let's answer some questions. Who are these sons of Elohim? Well, the sons of Elohim is a standard Hebrew phrase for spiritual beings who surround God's heavenly throne in the Eden mountain temple. And then it's also used elsewhere for the same beings, and there's some references there in Job, uh, who are the same as the heavenly host, and there it is in 1 Kings. They're also members of the divine council whom God invites to participate in His heavenly rule. And so just as angels, as we talked about last week, can take uh, human appearances and interact with humans, then so too, apparently, can the divine council through this mating with humans and creating giants in the land kind of thing. So this story, I think it's important for us to note this in your notes here. This story then represents a second heavenly rebellion alongside the, the snake seraphim's rebellion in Genesis 3. Okay, so it's another rebellion where these created heavenly beings decided to rebel and come to earth and to mate with humans and create these uh, giants. Another question that we get, did they actually have sex with human women's, the, uh, women? The answer is yes. Yes, they did. Uh, they did have uh, sex with them, uh, as strange and bizarre as it might seem. There's a chart in your notes that I would like you to refer to that would draw some parallels to show us how this is um, parallel to, a, to the heavenly rebellion in Genesis 3. So you see Genesis 2, 3, 2, I'm sorry, Genesis chapter 2 and chapter 3, you see the snake and the woman, okay? You see that scripture there? It says Genesis 2, 24 through 25. Notice that scripture and then go catty corner to Genesis 6, 3 and notice the same language there. When he uses the word, they will become one flesh in Genesis 2. Genesis 6, 3, inasmuch as he also is flesh. So we're drawing some parallels here to show that it's another um, rebellion. Then look at the grade uh, boxes that are catty corner to each other. Uh, Genesis 6, 1, notice the bold. The sons of God saw... He saw that they were good and they took. Well, that's the same language of the garden when Eve, I mean, I'm sorry, Eve took. It says that the woman saw, same language there, that it was good and she took. So it's a, this is an inverted replay of the garden story, but it's extremely intensified. So instead of the woman taking what is good in her own eyes because of the lies of the spiritual being, Genesis 6 tells us that it is the spiritual being who took women who are good in their eyes. Okay? And so uh, we see there that the woman desired to have wisdom and life in the garden on her own terms. So she rebelled. She didn't want to follow God's commands. Well, this then brings light to the same motive with the sons of God here. They were taking these women. uh, It was a way to try to restore this life in Eden where humanity was against God's command. He wanted, they wanted to keep this rebellion going on because they had been exiled and so they wanted everybody else to be exiled with them. They wanted to keep this rebellion going on. Um, if you want to take notes, there's another one. We're not going to go into it because we don't have time. But in Genesis 19, with the story of Lot. Okay, Genesis 19 with the story of Lot is yet again this inverted story about spiritual beings having having sex with human beings, but it's inverted. 
Okay, In the story of Lot, we see that Lot is hosting two angels in Sodom, and the men of Sodom come to Lot's house to rape the angels. Crazy story. I know. The Bible is crazy. And Lot, in this act of betrayal, what does he do? He offers up his two daughters to the crowd instead of the men. Uh, instead, of the, yeah, instead of the men. Uh, and so what the angels do? The angels intervene. They strike down the man with blindness. Um, and that's the same pattern as we see in Genesis 6. Okay, So it's just showing us how humanity is so corrupt, especially when these demonic spirits come in and they're corrupting us. Uh, and so Lot is presented as an opposite to people in the Bible like Abraham, who sacrificed, went to sacrifice his son to God, not to a, a demon, and God intervened uh, and it said, no, you don't have to do that. I'll provide a, I'll provide a ram in the bush. Uh, Noah in Genesis 6, uh, so Lot's opposite of Noah, who was found faithful and pure and followed God, was not full of that Hamas spirit, was full of the Holy Spirit. Um, and then you'll see another little box uh, chart of Genesis 6.1 um, and then Genesis 19, because uh, we don't have time to go into all of it, but some parallels that you can study out um, there. So, again, crazy stuff, but let's keep on going because we're, we're going somewhere with this. What were the children of these distorted heaven and earth unions that happened, okay? So they, they produced what the Bible calls Nephilim, okay? You see it bolded there. And it was a group that was living in the, in the land in those days and after, okay? But there's another place, the only other place actually, that this word appears in the Hebrew Bible, and it helps us understand what's happening here in Genesis 6, okay? So look at Genesis 6. This is when the, the spies were sent out by Joshua. And it says that the spies gave the sons of Israel a bad report of the land, which they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone and spying it out is a land that devours, same language as Satan, right? He's a devourer. It's inhabitants. It eats them up. That's what that word means. It eats them. Eats them up. And all the people who were, we saw in it were the men of great size. There also we saw Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who were from Nephilim. So we, have, we see some descendants now. The sons of Anak or Anak. They are descendants of the Nephilim, showing us that this is still going on after the flood. Okay, So the Nephilim were these giant warriors from ancient times. Okay, we see that in our notes there. That Greek word, when it translates to Greek, is giants. Um, and we also see, it's important for us to know we don't have time to cover all this, but um, every, almost every time that, in, that Israel tried to enter into the promised land, many of those cities and kings that attacked the Israelites, they were descendants, they were offspring of the Nephilim. So every time... That, that God's people tried to possess the promises of God, that what God promised them, and they were attacked, nine times out of ten, they were descendants of this evil spirit, this Nephilim. Okay, so just showing you how this has been going on for generations. Okay, every time the people of God try to walk in the promises of God, the enemy attacks us. And that's true today, that that same evil spirit uh, tries to attack us. Okay. Uh, you'll see a lot of scriptures 
uh, referencing the descendants of the Nephilim in your notes. Uh, most of them are in Deuteronomy, some in Joshua, some in Samuel. Uh, you, you've got the, uh, uh, the people, the um, Goliath, who was from Gath. You've got the Rephim. You've got the uh, Anakites. You've got all these people uh, that we see that are descendants. And I think it's important for us to know these were descendants of the giants, okay? And so, knowing all this, the last question we're going to look at is what do the Nephilim warrior giants have to do with spiritual evil, okay? It's a weird story. Okay, Michael, I don't understand it completely. What does it have to do with evil? Like, where, where does this come into play? Well, Genesis 6 is telling us that all these violent, very tall, like, warrior giants that we see uh, who spread death and terror throughout ancient times, they have their origin in spiritual rebellion, okay? Because we've, we've been drawing that line all the way back to the garden, that Hamas spirit. And so this concept of a human divine warrior was so common in the ancient Near East, okay? In biblical times, it was very common. Uh, like I told you earlier, Gilgamesh uh, was one of those in, in, the, in their mythology. Uh, we see that over and over. But, um, but also, I want to make note um, of Nimrod. Uh, we don't have a lot of time to get into it. I don't think, I think we might mention it later. Yeah, we'll mention Nimrod in, in a minute, but just take note of it in case we don't. Nimrod is also um, um, described as a mighty warrior using the same kind of language as the Nephilim. So just make note of that so you can study it out um, in case we don't get time to cover it. Um, Nimrod is also credited, he's the one who was uh, building Babylon and, and Uruk, um, which uh, Uruk, or, or Uruk, E-R-E-K, Erek, whatever, uh, is the Hebrew spelling of Uruk, which was Gilgamesh's city. Okay, so just if you wanted to study all this mythology, um, uh, Gilgamesh, who we know is this half-human, half-divine uh, being giant, um, his hometown, his city, was that which Nimrod was trying to build. Um, and Nimrod is described as a rebel. His name sounds like rebel. He's described as the same kind of being here. Uh, I put, I want to, I want to hone in on these Rephim uh, because I want you to see how uh, this spirit works and operates. This Rephaim here, and there's some um, references to it. There's some of the descendants of the Nephilim, but notice the bolded text there. They are referred to as the spirits of dead warrior kings. So when these giants die, their spirit doesn't die, right? Like, so if I, me full of the Holy Spirit, if I die, that doesn't mean the Holy Spirit dies, right? Or if a demonized person, somebody who's uh, demon-possessed dies, that doesn't mean that the demon dies, right? It lives on. And so when the Bible uses this very common word of, Rephaim, it's used to describe the spirit that lives on. It's the spirit of the dead warriors, okay? And so um, we see in Isaiah, him, him talk about them rising from the grave. We see it in Psalm 88, them rising from the grave. But notice Isaiah 14, 9. It, it talks about the realm of the dead below. So like in the grave in, or, you know, in Sheol or whatever you want, in the belly of the earth. And it talks about how um, these leaders of the world are rousing it. They're, they're trying to get it to come up from the grave. But notice that it says, 
all those who are leaders in the world, okay, uh, it is making a, uh, an assumption here that a lot of the world leaders are full of this spirit. In the biblical times, they were full of this spirit. They had this demonic spirit uh, that was controlling them. And, uh, and some would say that they are also controlling current world leaders today. So uh, um, just interesting to note if you wanted to study that out more. Uh, but these uh, Rephaim are surviving spirits of the realm of the dead. And they're associated with the Nephilim. And they're associated with these giant warrior kings that have origins that go all the way back to Genesis 6. Um, and then we also see some New Testament uh, references to them in Jude and in Peter. You'll see those in your notes as well. Um, and uh, in Jude, it actually merges Genesis 6 with Solomon and Gomorrah to show that it was the same demonic spirit, that this spirit was, was continually at work, um, these spirits of the dead. Okay, uh, So why does all this matter? Okay. Well, these giant warriors, these giant warrior kings, they play a key role in this um, biblical narrative in Genesis 1 through 11 of rebellion. And that is in the founding of Babylon. Okay, and there's some scriptures. We don't have a lot of time to go into it. uh, And so I'm going to just throw it out there to you and then you can read on it. But um, I think it's important to note about Babylon that um, these when they're talking about Babylon, these two scriptures are making links, multiple links, back to Genesis 3 with the garden and Genesis 6 with the Nephilim, okay? And then Nimrod, who was the, the great-grandson of Noah, okay? He was called a mighty warrior, as we talked about. His name is, uh, that's mighty warrior there is the same word to describe the offspring of the sons of God uh, when they made it in Genesis 6 with human women. Um, so, um, that's important for us to note. Um, let me see if there's anything else there. Genesis 11 uh, gives us a complementary story of Babylon's origins. We're told that the city and its temple tower were built in order to have tops in the heaven. They wanted to have its top in the heavens. So in other words, it was trying to recreate the garden. Okay, It was trying to recreate that. Remember, the garden is where uh, in Eden where heaven and earth overlapped. Okay, Um, and then you see a scripture in Isaiah 14, uh, verses 4 through 5 and 12 through 15. See that passage there uh, in your notes right above uh, the conclusion before we get to the conclusion. Uh, This is a poem that a poem that Isaiah depicts the king of Babylon as a human rebel who is embodying this spiritual rebel. Okay. So same as the king of Tyre, who we talked about earlier, who was demonized. The king of Babylon was also demonized, full of this spiritual uh, rebel, if you will. This this, uh, Nephilim spirit was in the king of Babylon. And so the fact that Babylon was founded by Nimrod, this warrior giant that was associated with the Nephilim, and then it was built up as as an anti-Eden. They were trying to recreate this Eden. It shows us that Babylon is more than just a human empire, but it's also an icon for human and spiritual rebellion. And again, we don't have a lot of time to go into to Babylon. So um, from the rest of your notes, there's a lot of content in here, um, but some conclusions that we can read about on uh, spiritual evil from the Old Testament Hebrew Scriptures. 
uh, Genesis 1 through 11, you can see there um, some summaries. Um, we have encountered multiple spiritual and human rebellions, and they're all intertwined. We see in Genesis 3 and 4, the original spiritual rebel is a former exalted throne guardian of God's heavenly temple who resents being subservient to exalted humans. Remember that pattern that we talked about. And so what does he do? He lures them into the same temptation he uh, succumbed to, seizing authority by his own wisdom and abusing it for selfish purposes. And when we watch humans replay this rebellion, first with Adam and Eve, and then with Cain murdering his brother, and then we get to Genesis 6 and Genesis 11, where even more members of the divine council rebel, making for an intensification of Genesis 3 in that rebellion there. And this results in the spread of creatures who are part spiritual being and part human being, as weird as it sounds to our ears. That's what the Bible says. Who spread Hamas violence through their empires, beginning with Babylon. As many of uh, these beings who died in the flood, their spirits live on in the underworld as terrifying monsters, as these uh, Rephim, as we talked about. And so... These narratives provide us with three categories of spiritual evil. All right? We have the arch-rebel, arch the, the snake, if you will. Then we have some lower-level spiritual rebels who deceive humans into exalting their uh, empires to divine status. And then we see the deceased spirits of the Nephilim who endure a shadowy ex uh, existence in the underworld. Okay? So you see there three different levels, if you will, of spiritual beings that are demonic, that are evil. Okay, some crazy stuff, all right? Um, so, um, we're going to focus in on those uh, deceased spirits in just a moment. Uh, you'll see next in your notes something that we're just going to uh, comb over for the sake of time. But there's a storyline in the Hebrew Bible. Um, and these um, categories of spiritual rebels that we just talked about are developed throughout the storyline of the Hebrew Bible. We see... Um, the uh, ark rebel, the, the Satan, if you will, the snake in the garden, he can be depicted as a sea dragon in Isaiah 27, uh, a dangerous desert creature in Psalm 91. All right, We see a, key, a spirit king of the grave in Leviticus. You see those there. Uh, and then we see this accusing lawyer of divine court in Job. All right, There's also, if you want to write these notes down, it's not in your, in your notes, but there's also... Some stuff in the New Testament, well, there's one scripture in the New Testament I want you to write down that gives this mosaic-style portrayal of the snake, of, of Satan, and that's in Revelation chapter 12, verse 9. Revelation chapter 12, verse 9. Some words to notice in that when you read it. Dragon, snake, devil, Satan, deceiver are all in that one verse right there. Um, and so I think that's important for us to notice. Uh, in your notes, you do see that uh, the word demon. Notice that the word demon appears in the Old Testament two times to refer to this group of spiritual rebels that we've been talking about. Okay, And they are identified with the gods worshipped by the nations. And you see those two there, Deuteronomy 32, Psalm 106. Um, and then in your notes, you'll see uh, the, the spirits of the deceased warrior kings, these Rephim, who sought to terrorize the land and are judged by Yahweh in the underworld. The reference there, we didn't have time to go into it, but it's Ezekiel 32, 17 through 32. You see it in your notes there. Ezekiel 32, 
17 through 32. And that passage is going to talk about these fallen warriors of old, which are the same language of the Nephilim. It's going to talk about the realm of the dead, tying them into the Rephim. Uh, and then the good news, what happens here? Jesus encounters spiritual evil. We see this in the New Testament, okay? And we're going to see how Jesus conquers it, all right? We see these scriptures here where Jesus has a showdown with this adversary. Uh, you see where Matthew 4, he's called the devil. Matt, uh, Mark 1, he's called Satan. Luke 4, he's called the devil, all right? But I want us to understand and notice this. It's in your notes that neither the word devil or Satan are proper names. They're not proper names. They are rather titles. And that is why they both have the Greek word ha or the in front of them. So ha Satan, the Satan. It is an English transliteration of a Greek transliteration. All right, it is very complex. All right, uh, ha Satan. Uh, this biblical Hebrew word refers to an adversary or one who stands against. It can also refer to humans who oppose one another. There's references. Uh, it can refer to the angel of the Lord, actually, which we're going to talk about next week. We switched up some weeks on you. Uh, or it can talk about spiritual beings in God's throne room. Okay, so this is not a name, but a categorical title describing a person's function in the story. And so it is the one opposed or who stands against. And then when you see the, the word devil, it comes from the Greek word diabolos, or however you say, diabolos, all right? It describes a person who slanders or speaks the fame to another person, okay? So we see all that. So I think it's just important for us to notice that it's all about the function of that spiritual being or the function of that word, the function of that, that the role that they play in that, okay? Um, we see Jesus um, declare who his true enemy is. You see that in your notes. When Jesus goes announcing the arrival of God's kingdom, he made it perfectly clear that we are not his enemy. We're not his adversary. But there's a spiritual power of evil who he refers to by many titles. The devil, Satan, Beelzebul, ruler of demons, the power of darkness. So it's clear that Jesus assumes a whole storyline about the powers of spiritual evil um, that he didn't really teach it never was taught in the New Testament in depth about this. It was almost assumed. It was assumed that the readers knew about it. It was assumed that they had this knowledge uh, of this, uh, of these beings and their power and what they were. Um, and so we see in the New Testament, uh, if we want to just really briefly uh, kind of hit some of this, we see Satan and the slanderer uh, in there. And I'll, and I'll kind of skip through it, but um, I think it's important to note in your notes there, Jesus' testing in the wilderness in Matthew 4 is a replay of Adam and Eve's test in the garden. Notice that Satan offers Jesus a version of Babylon. Look at your scripture there in Matthew 4, uh, verse 8. Notice the bold words, a very high mountain that's similar to the garden and to Babylon. Uh, all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, that was the agenda of Babylon. And so it's, it's the parallels there, okay? Um, and then we see uh, um, more powers, if you will, uh, under that section called the powers. In Paul's letters, we see these rebel members of divine counsel, these powers and authorities. You see all that. That's another class there. 
that, in that categories. And we're, we're not going to read all those scriptures, but I would encourage you to, to read and study the powers there. Um, but let's, go, let's move on to demons and the evil spirits. See that in your notes. De, uh, demons and the evil spirits. When Jesus goes around announcing the good news of the kingdom of God, he regularly, on the, almost every time, he's confronting spiritual beings who are terrorizing individual humans. We call those demons, right? That These uh, spiritual evil beings that are terrorizing humans. They're terrorizing them physically, mentally, causing all kinds of sickness. We see Matthew 4, a great example, where uh, somebody who's demon-oppressed has all these different uh, ill, you know, um, health issues and all kinds of things. All right. So uh, in your notes, you'll see that how this list of ills combines demon oppression in a list of what is considered medical or mental illness. Like it's, they're saying here that in the in the author's mind that the person being demonized, that person being demonized caused sickness. It caused death. It caused mental instability. It caused bodily malfunction. Uh, and we talked about this before on a Sunday. Not all mental illness is caused by a demon, but some of it is. Not all sickness is caused by a demon, but some of it is. And so we see here where the scriptures talk about how when somebody is demonized, they can uh, have these types of illnesses. Uh, but notice the, um, the bolded word there, the rephim, the rephaim. They are all attributed to spiritual forces of death and the grave. And that is that spirit of Rephaim. Uh, the most, one of the most common titles for these demons, these evil spirits, is impure spirits. And there's a lot of scripture references in your notes right there, where they are referred to as impure spirits. We see it there uh, in Mark 1. Uh, notice that the spirit um, also speaks of us, plural. So it calls it an impure spirit, but it says, what do you have to do with us? So there's some plurality there where it's a collection uh, an army, if you will, an uh, uh, army of spiritual beings. Uh, but I want to hone in on the fact that why, does they call, why do they call them impure? Why are the spirits impure spirits? Now, all of them are referred to as impure, but there is a certain class of evil spirits that Jesus encountered that he called impure spirits. Okay, The reason that they are called impure spirits is because they are associated with that same spirit we talked about from the Nephilim, the Rephaim. Okay? Because they, that Rephaim were the spirits of the dead. In Jewish culture, the dead are impure. They're unclean. You don't touch a dead person or you'll become impure or unclean. Okay? And so to draw, this is a, um, in Mark 5, Jesus gives us a great example of how we can draw the conclusion that impure spirits, or these demons, if you will, are the spirits that, that were of old. These Nephilim spirits that were spirits of these great mighty warriors of old. They were, they were the dead spirits of these great kings that lived in the grave. And, and Mark 5 tells us that when he encountered this impure spirit, it was among the tombs. Okay? The graveyard. Because remember, that's where that spirit lives, among the dead. So when this man was demonized by a demonic spirit, it was a certain type of demon. It was this Rephaim, 
spirit, this descendant of the Nephilim spirit, this, the same one that calls Hamas in, the, in Genesis 6, the same one that calls Hamas in the garden. It was the, the spirit of the dead. Okay, And so uh, this man, when he was demonized, he was among the tombs. Okay, He had an impure spirit. If you keep on reading, it says that he had his dwelling place among the tombs. And watch this. No one was able to bind him anymore, not even with a chain. So he had supernatural strength. It's the same language as the Nephilim in Genesis 6, the giants. They had supernatural strength. Okay, uh, And so he was often bound with chains and shackles, but they were torn apart by him into pieces. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Same language as Joshua and the spies when he was like, we're just but grasshoppers. These men are huge and strong, okay? And so uh, we see here that from this passage right here, it's very easy to draw a parallel that this um, spiritual being that's a part of the remnant of the dead warrior giants that are ritual, they're, they're by ritual, they're impure, they are the impure spirits that Jesus face, uh, faces. They are these Rephaim spirits, okay? And they dwell among the dead, among the tombs, among the graveyards. That's why you see in the Old Testament, um, God warning, don't, don't call on the names of the dead. Don't, don't, because you're conjuring up this spirit. And we've said it on a Sunday before, but be, be cautious of movements that call out the names of the dead. That are calling, they're chanting the names of dead people. They're conjuring up this spirit right here. Uh, and so, we, I mean, Kanye and the Don, Donya event where his mama died, and he literally, his whole concert, they went in a circle chanting her name. They are trying to conjure up the spirit of the dead. Uh, one of the most uh, fastest paced religions right now in the New Age movement, Wicca. Wicca is a bunch of witches. And what do they do? They call on the name of the dead. Interesting to know, we don't have time to go into to Wicca, um, but, but this date's coming up, so I think it's relevant. Uh, Wicca, uh, the witches of, of this Wiccan religion, Wicca, they say that there's one time a year that the um, heavenlies and the earth are closest together. That there's one time a year where it is easier to call on the name of the dead spirits, to conjure them up. One time a year, October 31st. October 31st is that day that they say that heaven and earth are the closest and that they, are, they can easily communicate with these spirits and they conjure them up. And remember, these spirits live among the tombs. They live among the dead. How do we tend to decorate our house on October the 31st? With dead stuff, with tombs, with graveyards, with skulls, with ghosts. Whether you're intentional about it or not, whether you mean to do it or not, you are creating an environment to conjure up the dead spirits. That's exactly what you're doing. And you could say, well, that, well to me, that means nothing. Well, it was the same argument that, that they were talking about with Paul and eating the meat that was sacrificed to idols. Paul said, that idol means nothing. That is a dead God. But I still don't want you to eat that meat. He said, because by doing so, you're entertaining demons. Because there's demons associated with those dead idols. So in Christ, do we have freedom? Yes. Do we have victory over these? Absolutely. But that doesn't give us a free pass to do this. Remember the Bible says, don't open the door to the devil. Don't give a foothold to him. Don't allow them into your life. And so this same spirit that we see that, that was in the Nephilim, 
that then died and lived among the tombs and, and they would conjure up is the same spirit that the Wiccans call on on October the 31st. And so I think it's important for us to see that and know that. Um, and we don't have time to, to get into the whole Halloween argument. You, you, you pray about it. You do what you feel like you want to do. Um, the biggest argument is, well, we're redeeming that for the Lord. And I would love if you would find me a scripture that says that we are to redeem evil. It says we're to flee from it. It says so much, it says a flee from the appearance of evil. It's had nothing to do with it. Run from it. Run for your life. And so, uh, so we can't use that argument that we're trying to redeem it. Um, yeah, yeah, you can get into the argument of uh, it's All Saints Day. We're celebrating the martyrs because that does ha- that Halloween does have roots in that. But, but that's not what happens today. Like, we're not celebrating. Is anybody on Halloween celebrating the people that died for Christ? No, 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 we're not. Okay, so you can't use that excuse either. Um, it's, it is demonic, all right? Um, so anyways, um, I just wanted you to draw that, that parallel to that same Raphaim spirit um, that was uh, at work in the sons of man and when they are sons of God, when they made it with the daughters of man and they live on, they live on. Um, also talking about that, the Rephaim, this isn't in your notes, but um, I think it's interesting to know because last Sunday we talked about Israel and we talked about the war and how it's spiritual. Let me just reiterate how spiritual it is. Um, when we saw earlier in the text, these references to the descendants of the Nephilim and we saw uh, Goliath from Gath. Um, we saw um, the Rephaim, we saw all these places, uh, the, uh, the Philistines, all right? These were all the places that these giants settled, okay? Um, the Philistines, interestingly enough, settled in a place called Palestinia, which meant it literally translates the land of the Philistines. That, that country was then renamed by the Greeks to Palestine, okay? So Palestine, current day, present day Palestine was occupied by people that had this evil spirit, okay? This evil spirit that's been at work since the garden, since Noah and the flood, that's been at work in Joshua and the 12 spies, that's been at work all throughout generation to generation, their descendants, part of their descendants, settled in the land of Palestine. And that is not by coincidence that we're having a war uh, with Israel and Palestine are fighting this thing out, okay? Uh, That is because it is a spiritual battle. It has been happening um, is, is it physical too? Yes. Are people going to die? Yes. Is it going to get really bad? Yes. Um, it, that's just part of war. Uh, it's going to get bad. Um, we, we don't know. People will um, assume that this is leading into some other biblical prophecies as we talked about Sunday with the rapture. And if you missed that, I'd encourage you to go back and watch it uh, on YouTube or podcast or whatever. Um, um, we don't know what's next. We don't know uh, if this is uh, Ezekiel 38, biblical prophecies. We don't, we don't know. Uh, there's two things we do know. Jesus is coming back, and I'm going with him, okay? <laughs> like, that's, that's, that's what I know, all right? And I, because we don't know the day, the time, the hour of the second coming of Christ. But we know that in an instant, in twinkle of an eye, he's going to rapture his church. And so we're going, okay? So, uh, so don't, don't fret, don't worry. Um, um, Sidebar, this Sunday, we start a series on uh, Thessalonians. So we're going to cover First and Second Thessalonians. Every chapter of First Thessalonians references the second coming of Christ. Every chapter. Uh, and I think it's appropriate for the times we live in 
to do that. So don't miss Sunday. It's going to be great. Um, okay, we see some other stuff. The good news of Jesus' power over the spiritual evil. Um, I, I, I talked enough already, So, but you see how he has authority and power over uh, spiritual evil. And then uh, you'll see the conclusion about spiritual evil in the New Testament. Um, there's an uh, excerpt, if you will, of a section of a book that describes it very well uh, that's in that. But I think that last statement is so important uh, in our notes. The climax of Jesus' war of liberation against powers of spiritual evil was his arrest, execution, and death. This is how Jesus overcomes the power of evil because he resurrected, okay? He is alive. All that took place so that um, he can have that authority and then he gives us that authority. And so we don't have to be afraid or freaked out or uh, thinking that, um, that, that these, these evil spirits are going to control us. Uh, we can have that authority. We can, and if, if by chance we do give a foothold to the devil and are demonized, that some demonic spirit has attached itself to us, uh, you have the authority in Jesus' name to rebuke that. You can rebuke that uh, devil. You can bind that devil up. You have the authority to say that. I bind you up in the name of Jesus, and I cast you out. I cast you out. And, uh, and uh, I encourage you to go back and watch that sermon because um, people will say, well, can Christians be uh, demonized? And my answer is a Christian can have whatever they want. And so I, would, I would, don't, think you're, don't think you're immune to this, um, this spiritual evil. So anyways, that was a ton of content. I apologize. Um, but like I said, go to the Bible Project, watch the videos, uh, look at the study, download the study guides, uh, learn more about this stuff. Um, there's a, an author named Michael Kaiser. Hi, I'm sorry, Heiser, Michael Heiser. Uh, he's referenced throughout this study. Uh, he has two great books. Um, uh, one's called The Supernatural. One's called The Unseen World, I think is the other one. Uh, Unseen Realm? Yeah, yeah, okay. Thank you. Um, great books to look into. Uh, references a lot of other uh, ancient texts that support things, uh, that support what the Bible's saying. And so I'd encourage you to, to look into those um, because it, it's really good. So uh, we, we will have to speed up the Q&A time uh, for sake of time. But are there some questions that you think we can answer here tonight? Yes, Ms. Crystal. Mm-hmm. Correct. Uh-huh. Yeah, I, I was give her question. Her question. Yeah, I'm about to. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. I, as soon as you said something, I, it triggered my thought. She asked, "There was a first rebel, or she made the statement. There's a first rebellion in Genesis three, uh, but then there's also a second rebellion in Genesis six when these spiritual beings mated with the human beings. Was that the same?" Um, fallen angels from Genesis 3, or was that more of these uh, heavenly beings that fell, even more of them fell to earth? Uh, that right there is, is um, what theologians and all kinds of debate on all the time. Were the um, sons of God who mated with the daughters of man, were they already the fallen angels, or were they regular angels that fell like Genesis 3? Uh, the people that created this study uh, believe that they were not the same that they were actually um, some more fall, angels failed. Uh, matter of fact, Michael Kaiser, the guy that referenced, he gives supporting documents in his book to prove that they were not the already fallen, but that more fell um, from heaven during that time. Um, so anyways, yeah. So I, I don't know the answer to that. It could go either way. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
Anything else? Yep. Hey, Dana. Lay it on me. I'm good. Oh, praise the Lord. That's good. Dana, she's been praying for a job. The Lord provided. Hasn't touched her savings. That's great. Amen. That's incredible. Let me repeat that so everybody here. So Dana said that somebody in her class or at work is, at work is a Wiccan and said she, they were scaring everybody in the class because they said on October 31st, we're going to the graveyards and we're going to conjure up that spirit. And so it is real. Um, in this area, this going to be a graveyard in this area that they're going to do that in. No, that's awesome. Very insightful to let us know that it's real. It's real right here in our neighborhood. All right. Yeah, that's right. She's going to come to church and give her life to Jesus. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, bravo to you, man. That's, in, that's incredible. Most people would probably stay away from her, but you were led of the Holy Spirit to engage with her. And, and uh, wow, what a story. That's right. That's good. Okay, one last question before we uh, pray. Yes, sir, Mr. Dwayne. I think, yeah, I don't think there's... So he asks, is if, if, in encountering a demonized person, a demon-possessed person, is there any good or advantage to you knowing what type of uh, demon they have? Uh, and I, I don't think so. I think that God's power is greater than all of them. And so, um, yeah, so... Um, I do. I've I've read things and seen things where um, they'll try to whoever's casting that demon out will uh, like try to address the demon, not the person, and like all that. But um, but I'm like I want to hide behind the authority of Jesus and power of Jesus. I don't want to do too much interacting on 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 a yeah. I don't want to end up like those uh, seven sons that got whooped up, running out naked and beat up. So um, so yeah. One last question, then we're gonna have to pray to dismiss, pick up our kids. Yes, Shalanda. Yeah. Yeah, so um, we talked about last week, I think it was, that anytime uh, the prophets had visions or dreams of these spiritual beings, they were very bizarre. Like to describe the imagery that they used to describe them, you know, having heads like lions and wings like this and eyes like this were very bizarre to try to describe the majesty of them. Um, but yes, they, um, that word meaning, that seraphim word meaning venomous snake, and then in Isaiah using it to mean flying snake um, was something that the ancient Hebrews and, and other cultures actually, not just the Israelites, they also, every, a lot of the uh, other cultures had imagery of flying snakes to represent this spiritual being. So yeah, it's interesting, very interesting. Okay. Hey, I'll stick around for more questions, but let me just, we don't have time right now to um, spend too much time praying amongst our groups. Um, and so uh, let me um, close us in prayer uh, just to be mindful of all the child care, the kids workers back there. Um, we want to do that. But feel free to stick, like grab your kids, stick around, pray together, hang out, fellowship, ask questions. Uh, we just want to be respectful of them and get, getting them out of there. So let's pray together. Can we do that? 
Father, right now we come to you as children of, of God. We're in Christ, and thank you for that authority that we have in Christ. Thank you for uh, the boldness, the uh, Holy Spirit that we have. Thank you for all the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ. And God, I'm just reminded of who I am because I'm in Christ. Uh, um, beside, beside you, without you, I'm nothing. I'm filthy rags. But in Christ, I am more than a conqueror. Uh, I am chosen, redeemed. I'm a son of the Most High God. And so, Father, I thank you for that because I have a rightful place in heaven and I have authority over all that we talked about tonight. Uh, all, these, all this spiritual evil that is in the days of old and today, God, we as followers of Christ have authority over that. And we just commit as a fellowship, Lord, to, uh, to let our light shine in those dark places, to push back the kingdom of darkness, to advance the kingdom of light. And so, Father, would you continue to teach us Continue to grow us. Open our eyes. We want to have eyes to see what you're saying and what you're doing, God. And uh, so, Father, teach your children tonight. Teach us this week as we go home and unpack this and chew on this even more, God. Show us what it is that you're saying, Father. And Lord, we just love you. We honor you. We give you praise. We give you glory, Father. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.